0: Welcome to the PIP Permaculture Podcast. Today we're talking with Dr. Megan Halcroft. She's a science communicator and conservationist and specialises in native bees. She's also written an article in Issue 13 of PIP Magazine about native bees. Thanks, Megan, for having a chat with us today.
1: Thanks for your time.
0: So why native bees? What's so special and exciting about native bees that you would do a PhD focusing on them?
1: Uh, Well, because they're fascinating and exciting. Um, They're unusual. They're different to Apis mellifera, the European honeybee. Um, And they're not known to most people around the world. People are becoming more and more aware these days that there are other bees around, but our native bees have been fairly neglected, especially in Australia. Mm. Um, yeah, but they're, because they don't live in a colony, they don't provide us with honey, people don't, they're not interested, but they're really important pollinators and they're, they're potentially quite good pollinators for some of our crops, although there's a lot of research to be done on that. Mm. But they, they're the best pollinators we can have for our native plants. Because we don't have to interfere with our native bees, our solitary bees, a lot of the time we we don't sort of notice them.
0: So it's
1: not until people become aware of them by hearing programs like this or reading about them in magazines or seminars or whatever, um, that they realise, oh, I always thought that was a fly. Yeah. And then they become more aware of the fact that, well, actually, there's all these other amazing bugs in their garden and maybe I shouldn't be using those sprays that I've been using. Yeah,
0: totally. And, yeah, i found since I started learning about native bees now, I sit in my garden and if you just take the time to sit and watch and listen, there's a whole range of different bees that are existing there alongside the European honeybees.
1: Absolutely, and a lot of the time with the native bees, the big ones like the carpenter bees and the teddy bear and blue-banded bees, you will actually hear them before you see them. It's like, mm. What is that? What is that? And yeah. then you sort of you can get your ear in and, and become a, an explorer of the sound rather than the sight.
0: Yeah, I, I have that. The blue-banded bee in our garden, you always hear that buzzing and then you search for where it actually is.
1: Yeah, it's like it's almost inviting bo- biting you, isn't it? Yeah.
0: <laughs> so do the native bees work as well as pollinators in our own garden, for say your veggie garden as and fruit trees, as the honeybee?
1: Yeah, sure they do. Um, so what makes them different to the honeybee is so because the honeybee and the stingless bee as well, they're social insects and they need to to shop or go shopping for their community, so they have to go out with great big shopping bags and bring back all the groceries, which is the pollen and uh, which is a protein, and the nectar, which is um, a carbohydrate, so it's a sugar, mm. and that's what feeds their their colony, um, especially their developing brood, the babies. So, in order for them to feed their colonies, they um, they actually will they'll pack the ne- the pollen into the what they call the um, pollen baskets on their back legs, and they have to incorporate a little bit of nectar in that so that they can pack it into layers and make it as big a parcel as possible. Um, But that pollen is no longer available to get transferred from one flower to another because it's now stuck to the leg. And so that's now can't be a pollinating source. Whereas the solitary bees, they are only rearing one individual baby or or larva at a time Mm -hmm. and and so they collect enough pollen and nectar just to feed one offspring at a time and so they pack the pollen into what are called scopal hairs and these hairs um, are either plumose or feathery or they're quite um, bristly and they can pack the pollen in there and carry that but it's dry they don't need to carry so much um as as much as the honeybee so they don't they never wet the pollen and so it's dry so every time they visit a flower they've got all this dry pollen packed into the hairs under the abdomen or in under, between their legs and as they move over the flowers this pollen is then transferred from one flower to another so they're actually much better pollinators individually than the social bees
0: mm. So going back to that, could you explain to people listening that don't necessarily know the difference between the solitary and the social bees?
1: Okay, so a social colony, uh, Let's we'll talk about the honeybee and, and the stingless bees are very similar. We have one queen bee. Um, she's the one who she mates and then she comes back to the colony and she lays all of the, the eggs um, and if she wants them to be workers, she fertilises the egg with the sperm. If she, doesn't, if she wants them to be uh, male, she doesn't fertilise the egg, which kind of does one's head in. But, so <laughs> that means that she produces all of the female workers and there can be thousands and thousands of those and they can't mate and they can't produce offspring. And then there's a few hundred drones around spring, summer.
0: The male bee.
1: Yep, the male bees. And um, so, the queen has to be looked after by the workers, and because the workers can't produce offspring, she's the only one who can lay eggs, right? So she can't survive without them, and they can't—they, they as a colony can't survive without her. Mm. So they're totally committed to each other. Whereas the solitary bees, when the the female emerges from her cell. She then can mate with with a bee with a male bee. She can mate several times. Um, he can also mate several times. Um, and she then is able to produce offspring for the rest of her life. But she can move from one area to another. She's not committed to a specific area because she hasn't got a community or a colony to look after. And so she's just one individual who lives her life on her own and she can produce her offspring on her own.
0: Mm. Mm. And of, there are, So there are about 2,000 Australian bee species, is that right?
1: That's correct, and about 20,000 in the world.
0: Right, okay. And, but there are only about 11 of those are social, so most of them are solitary, is that correct?
1: That's right, yes. So in Australia we've got 11 species of, so, of stingless social bees, And, um, yeah, about 2,000 species of solitary semi-social. We have some semi-social species, uh, which include reed bees. So they they can have a very small community, but they're never so dependent upon any one individual. So the queen, if she dies, because she's the the, um, female who is laying eggs, if she dies, another one will take her place. Mm. So they've all got the potential of being the laying okay. laying um, female. So, so they've got a little community. They help each other out, but they're not highly social like honeybees. Mm.
0: So if people are wanting to know if they've got some native bees in their garden, what should they look out for? Like they know what a normal bee looks like, but how could they identify these social bees? I mean the native bees.
1: Yeah. So the solitary bees are um okay the the place to observe them is on flowers don't get your nose in there and have a look at the flowers (laughs) stand stand about a meter a meter and a half away from an area of flowers and you're not looking for a bee you're looking for movement so once you've been there for a little while then suddenly you'll say oh there's something moving around there and don't don't hone in too quick just watch where it's going what what it's doing what its movements are so Honey bees, when you see them go from flower to flower, they sort of it's sort of like a wave, the way they move. So they fly from one flower to another in a sort of just a easy wave. Whereas mm. a lot of the solitary bees dart. So they dart from one flower to another. They're very fast. And now all of that is to try to avoid being eaten by anything. So they've got to be fast and and they're they're on the flower quite uh, short periods of time, a lot of the time. Mm. Um, and then once you've found that, then with patience and practice, you can start spotting, oh, it's got dry pollen on the un- underneath its abdomen or, oh, it's got blue bands or, um, uh, yeah, you can see all sorts of things. Once, once you um, get a little bit interested in it, it's a really good idea if you can join a Facebook group like my group, which is Be Aware of Your Native Bees, so double E Aware of Your Native Bees, and they, um, if you can join up that and then you can post some of your photos or you can just look at other people's photos and go, oh, I think I've got one of those. Mm, that's great. That sort of thing, actually becoming familiar with what you want to be seeing and then go, like, oh, I've got that, and then, yeah, then the adventure
0: begins. Yeah. So, are these bees endangered as likely European honeybee is sort of threatened? So, the, are the native yeah. bees facing the same issues?
1: Okay, so the European honeybee, Apis mellifera, is never going to be extinct. It doesn't matter what people say. We will always manage it so that it's always available for our crops. Um, the wild colonies may be wiped out by pests and diseases, which Mm. they have been overseas. Uh, Overseas, the managed bees are worked much, much harder and Mm. are under much more stress than our bees are. They also have Varroa mite. Varroa mite is um, a, well, it's a blood sucking parasite that weakens the bee nutritionally and it also transfers viruses and, and other diseases between colonies, between individuals, and and also makes them far more susceptible to the other stresses like uh, pesticides and poor nutrition. So that's why they're having this colony collapse disorder. Mm. Australia doesn't have that issue. We are, our honeybee industry is extremely healthy. We've got lots and lots of feral colonies around as most people would realize some people don't like them, so they call them ferals. Others call them natural living. Yeah. So it just depends on, yeah, so, you know, whatever rocks your boat. Yeah. Um, but the problem is worldwide we use way too many pesticides, mm. fungicides, all sorts of different sides. Um, we're removing their habitat, so the native bees will live in dark so 70% of our native bees will burrow into the ground. Mm. Um, At 30% we'll live in old borer holes, so trees that have got borer holes in them or dead branches or rotting rotting um, wood. And we see that and we clean it up. If you've got borers mm. in a tree, you cut the tree down. So we're removing their habitat and then we're removing their food resources. So we're cutting down the forest and we're farming or developing land and not replacing that those food resources for for the um, the native bees. So unfortunately in Australia we don't actually have any evidence and there'll be certain groups who'll say, Oh, but there's no evidence that we have any um that, that that the populations are deteriorating, no we don 't have any evidence because no one's ever funded any research, so that we can get some evidence mm. we're only just starting to do that sort of thing now,
0: yeah, and I think it's quite surprising when I first heard that a lot of the bees actually burrow in the ground that I think most people sort of imagine they're in a tree or so that's interesting so what can what can we do in our own gardens to? make sure that we're creating a habitat that will support the native bees?
1: Okay, so the first thing is food. Mm -hmm. You need to plant lots and lots of flowering plants. And in order to make sure that there's food for all of the bees, so not all bees will be active all year. So you'll find that a lot of the cavity nesting bees will start to emerge or become obvious in your garden uh, uh, sort of late spring, early summer. Whereas the ground nesters will actually start to be seen late winter, early spring, because it's warmer in the ground and once the air is, the ambient temperature is warm enough for them to fly, they've actually, they've got a bit more energy to come out and start to forage. So I've seen um, homolectus and lactose blossom around my place and it's quite cold um, at 9 and 11 degrees. So we have... uh, quite uh, robust populations around here um, and so what we need to do is provide enough food that there's flowers in early uh, sorry late winter all the way through spring summer autumn and and early winter as well so that whatever species are emerging at different times of the year they'll be able to get food when they when they emerge and then they can then produce their offspring and hopefully increase the local populations.
0: So what are some plants in particular that you could recommend that people can plant in their gardens that are flowering all year round?
1: Well, most plants aren't flowering all year round so you've actually got to look at, well, what's, if you, if you go to the nursery and have a look, okay, so these ones flower in spring and then you have another look and, oh, so this one's flowering in summer, I'll get some of those, and these ones flower in winter or mm. autumn or whatever. And if you, can, if, you, um, if you start to take notice of your neighbourhood, what's flowering at different times of the year and write that down and what's doing really well at that time, of, you know, in, that, in your area. Um, and if it's doing really well, get more of them. Mm. Um, and rather than planting like we were used to be taught taught you know landscape, you go you know you put we'll put a lavender over there, and we'll put some daisies in between, and then we'll put this and and then we'll put another lavender you know you put all the lavenders in one corner and you put all the daisies in another mm. and that means that you, there's this really large area of you know about two one and a half to two meters in diameter of flowers that go come over to me okay. So waving bees, a big
0: flag.
1: Yeah, that's exactly, it, and that, that is way more attractive to the bees than individual plants sort of scattered around.
0: Mm. Mm. And what about the habitats, so creating spaces where they can live? What sort of things can we do to make sure that there are enough habitats for them?
1: So let's the, stop being neat freaks. yeah, but if you have to have to be a neat freak when you're pruning, Just check if some of the stems are hollow and if they are, you can just bundle them up in 30 centimetre lengths and tie them up with some wire and then tie that to a tree limb or to the fence post and a lot of bees will nest in hollow stems. Um, If you've got pieces of wood or if you've got, uh, say, um, a dead tree or a stump, you could drill some holes in that of various sizes, so between three and eight millimetres in diameter and as deep as possible. Um, you can just use old old bits of hardwood and drill some holes in that and stick them in the corner of the garden, or you can get really carried away and make some lovely bee habitat um, that are, are artistic and the kids can help with painting it. There's lots and lots of examples on on the internet, um, and if you wanted to go go to my website, there's lots of information on there, and that's beesbusiness.com.au. Um, and all of everything on there, pretty much everything on there is you're is able to be da- downloaded for free. So mm. oh, there's lots and lots of information.
0: So what if people don't have them in their garden? What can can you introduce them somehow, or you just need to create an. In- well, they,
1: the, the, the adage is, build it and they will come. Yeah. But the most important thing is to provide flowers, so they'll come for a meal, and then they'll go. Oh, there's a hotel. Mm. But you've got to bring them, entice them for the meal first. So, put the restaurant up, and then you can start putting up some accommodation. Yeah. <laughs> also, for our net, our ground nesting bees, if if it's uh, if you've got spaces in the garden that you know how sometimes you have areas that just don't hold the mulch. Mm. So don't mulch it. We've all been taught to mulch things within an inch of, their life, of its life because of trying to uh, retain moisture. Mm. But when you think about the fact that um, our bees vary from 5 millimeters to 20 millimeters, and the 5 and 10 millimeter bees are the ones that burrow into the ground, that really thick mulch is tough to get through and mm. they can't. So if we can leave some bare ground, about a metre square, uh, in some areas, um, in some sun, and then just leave that and hopefully some bees will get into that.
0: Hmm. And what about city versus country or suburban? Is it, is it harder Suburbia's to have native actually, bees?
1: No, it's not. There's a lot of native bees. Um, there's... Tanya Latti, who is a researcher at Sydney University, they did some studies on suburban uh, populations, and they found a lot of ground nesting bees in the area, mm. living in cracks and crevices. But they did some sand; uh, they put out trap nests as well, so drilled like bee hotels basically, and they found quite a lot of populations in uh, different gardens. Because what we do in suburbia is we love our little gardens, and we want the flowers to be pretty and smelling nice, so we water them and we prune them and we look after them, fertilise them. So if every single person or even 50% of the population had that little garden, it's a lot of flowering plants. Mm. But the problem is, and this is my hobby horse at the moment, is that there's a lot of encouragement for people to put beehives in the backyards and on building roofs and it's all competition for our native bees. Mm. So if you want to save the bee, plants and flowering plants don't get a honeybee hive.
0: Okay, So you think having a honeybee hive could, although it increases the bee population overall, it's actually detrimental to the native bees?
1: It is, yes, and it only increases the population of one species.
0: Mm. So is it possible to do it in a way that they can live together like if you've got a large enough space or do you think
1: you have you have to have a lot of flowering plants and people will rationalize themselves like they'll rationalize it. So, oh i've got a lot, a lot of flowering plants but i've got five honeybee hives mm. it's like i don't know um if I haven't got a problem with Apis mellifera. I think they're a very, very important agricultural tool. We need them for our horticulture and our agricultural pollination and our monoculture mm. uh, pollination for food production. And, yes, I like honey. I eat honey. It's, it's a very valuable food resource. But there are so many backyard beekeepers who really, if you're trying to save the bee, don't get a honeybee home.
0: Controversial words. Controversial.
1: <laughs> I know. Our, Our last podcast was just population. talking
0: all about having a beehive, but it was no, talking about it. natural beekeeping and having yeah, that them. Is
1: a bit better. Mm. But yes, oh, that's if if we could all just plant a whole lot more flowering plants, then mm. maybe we could support everybody.
0: So, are there some plants in particular? What are your favourite flowering plants that you have?
1: Um. For me, so exotics that are really easy are um, herbs, so thyme and oregano, uh, lavender, uh, rosemary. They're really good. Um, They're really good. The the thyme and the oregano are great for the short tongue bees and the long tongue bees. Mm -hmm. The 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 lavender and the rosemary have got quite long flowers, so it's the long tongue bees prefer those to the short tongue bees. Um, bog Sage. I never remembered what, what the um it's a Salvia. It's um I'll just look it up now, Bog Sage. Um yeah. and I'll find out uh, it is fantastic. Oh, here we go. Salvia Uliginosa.
0: Okay.
1: U L I G I N O S A. Okay. I've got that. I had that in, in the Lower Blue Mountains and I've also got this in Hampton. It's a bit, bit later flowering in Hampton but it is just an absolute magnet and it does really well. It's frost hardy and mm. it dies right down in winter but it comes back up in summer and all the bees love that. Um, what else? Uh, dahlias are really good. But then the um, – so on my website I've got uh, I've got some – done up a, a resource that says it's called Choosing Plants to Attract Native Bees mm. and it's got um, lots and lots of, it's four pages and it's got, so your myrtaces, the tea tree and the gums and the lily pili and it explains, you know, about the short tongue bees, how they've co-evolved with those. Um, they do really well. Um, then there's your asteraceae, so the daisies, the native daisies um, and pea flowers. Um, Mass, sorry, um, resin bees and leaf cutter bees absolutely adore pea flowers, and they're mm-hmm. much better pollinators of them than honeybees. Honeybees will actually bite a hole in the nectary and steal the the nectar mm. rather than pollinating the plants properly, and that's what happens with a lot a lot of our native plants. Um, our native bees have evolved with our native plants, so they are the best pollinators of them. Mm. So yeah, if, if they wanted, if your listeners wanted to go to my website, it's again there's more resources, and this is just this thing on um, which bee which flowers attract the sorts of bees. You know, we'll talk about the different genera of bee that might be attracted to those flowers.
0: Mm. And what about different vegetables and edibles that you can plant that are good for native bees?
1: Uh, oh, they love brassicas. So if you've got bok choy. It readily bolts. They love that. Mm. Um, what else? Yeah, um, we've had
0: bok choy going to flower a lot in our garden and it's always just humming with humming. bees. Mm, absolutely.
1: Um, and don't forget your weeds because dandelion is one of the first floral resources available uh, at late, in late winter. Mm. early spring, And they're very popular with the native bees, solitary um, homolyptus and the lassie glossum love dandelions and flatweed, um, just, you know, within reason. Once they start to go to seed, then cut them down and mm. compost them. Um, but, yeah, uh, what else? Um, yeah, so,
0: I mean, it, when you have a gardening style that's maybe a little bit, you might call it lazy or <laughs> relaxed. No, and I, you... I'm
1: giving you that excuse to be <laughs> relaxed.
0: Yeah, well, you let your flowers, you let your plants go to seed and go to flower and you leave your weeds in and you let your garden be a little bit more wild, that's actually better for the native bees. I guess because it's mimicking nature a bit more. There's no one in nature coming around pulling everything out just when it's finished and replacing it. That's right.
1: And and your weeds, once they start to die, a lot of the time they'll have um, hollow stems that the bees Mm. can nest in as well.
0: So often just... If you don't pull them out, just making maybe making a pile in the garden, or
1: yeah, you could make a pile or just um, bundle them, them up, up and maybe attach them to the to the fence or a tree or yeah.
0: Mm. And there's yeah. some beautiful examples of bee hotels that people make that they put around the garden. But I think yeah. you were saying once before that it's best not to have too many different types of habitats all in the one small bee hotel. Is that right?
1: Well, it's best to have several small hotels than to have one big wall, you know, mm. a big extravaganza. Yeah, um, because that's just going to bring in the predators and the parasitoids mm. and spiders. Um, whereas if you have if you have them scattered, small ones scattered around the place, it's mimicking nature. It's like, um, you know, one dead tree's got a few holes in it, and and. and Dead branch has got another few holes in it. So if you look at nature, that's, that's what mm. it's trying to do.
0: Now, I've heard about um, a group in Sydney and I think in Melbourne as well that actually create native bee hives where they put them in people's gardens and then they can collect honey out of them. Could you explain how that works?
1: Yeah, so that's stingless bees. So that's yep. our social bees. Uh-huh. Um that can only happen in areas that have natural pop- populations of stingless bees. So west of the mountains in uh, in the east coast, um, there are no native stingless bees uh, in the temperate areas, so you can't okay. do that there. But you can do that in Sydney, up to Brisbane, um, up in Queensland, northern uh, Northern Territory.
0: And what about uh, further they, south in Melbourne and... Or
1: down no, in Tassie. not in Melbourne. No, no. So we, they don't have stingless bees. Uh, okay. And people will say, oh, we can keep them warm and you can feed them, but then you can't. Well, if even if they did survive, which I doubt, hmm. um, oh, it's a lot it.
0: of little jumpers to knit to keep them warm. Isn't it, it
1: is, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not so much that they that they suffer from the cold. It's the fact that stingless bees won't fly unless it's about eighteen degrees ambient temperature. Okay. And so, if you think about Melbourne and Tasmania, mm. and, and it's the same for here in Hampton, you have really long winters. And if you've got, uh, then when spring starts, it's sort of pretty cool in the, win- in the morning. And then you get a few hours of, of warm, and then it gets cold again. So, it's only those few hours that they're able to get out. And a lot of the time they go, oh, actually, you know, it's just, it's almost time to go to bed. I'm just not coming out. Mm. And so they don't have the time to be able to collect stores to survive over winter. Mm. So they starve over winter.
0: Okay. Yep. So in the areas where it does work, does it? Do they produce much honey? And what's that honey like?
1: Uh, all right. Let's say Brisbane. Yes, they produce enough honey. You could you could probably harvest about a kilo of honey each year, compared to fifty kilos for a honeybee hive. Mm. Yep. So, um, and it's, if it's a tetragonula species, it's quite uh, tangy. Often the bees will, they contaminate the honey with pollen. They either put pollen pots near the honey or they'll contaminate it with just a few grains of pollen and it starts to ferment. So it's got this really tangy taste to it. I'm not a big fan. Um. The Austropalpia, which are in the, which is in the northern parts of Australia, um, they make a much cleaner honey. It's very floral, um, it's very light, um, but yeah, it, it's it's very nice. But mm. it's, if you've got bees in Sydney, I'd never recommend people harvest the honey. Um, mm. People do, but I think it's a very expensive. Uh, pot of honey if you kill your colony, which is $450 at least per hive. Mm.
0: By um, taking their winter stalls, basically.
1: Yes, yeah, basically. But if you wanted to have a colony in your garden to help pollinate your garden or as a pet um, or to help conserve the species, then I'm all for it, mm. but only in their natural environment. So people moving species from place to place and now and then wonder why they don't survive. So, mm. But man has to interfere.
0: Yeah. <laughs> just let them be.
1: Why we like having honeybees because we get to play. Yeah we get to interfere
0: and control them or we'll try That's to. It.
1: Yeah.
0: So basically, if people want to get more native bees in their garden, they need to plant more flowers. Create, be a bit more messy <laughs> yes, a
1: bit more so relaxed. It's a good excuse you're being given permission
0: yeah, <laughs> so to mimic nature, which is what permaculture is about too it's about mimicking yeah. using systems that mimic nature, so in that way again we're encouraging native honey native bees, so yeah, that sounds like it's great to hear about native bees and to hear that opposing view that because there is so much focus on the honeybee at the moment that Mm. it's good to know that because a lot of people don't necessarily want to have a hive and manage it all they might be a bit frightened of them that you don't to help save the bees that's not the only thing to do then not necessarily the right thing to do that basically if we just plant flowers and allow our gardens to be a bit more we will allow the bees to be
1: that's right and all the other insect pollinators and insect predators and All of the things that then follow them, the birds and the frogs, and it's all a balance.
0: Mm, About creating that ecology.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay, well, thanks a lot, Megan, for having a chat today. It's been really fascinating to hear more about native bees and learn what we can do to help protect them.
1: It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me.